Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, Children of the Day. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Talk of the second coming of our Lord ought to fill believers with a sense of expectancy. But as we know, sometimes it does not. And when I think about this, I'm reminded of the coronavirus of COVID-19. You know, by all accounts, or at least this is how I understand the matter at this vantage point when I'm recording this, but, you know, that the leading epidemiologists in the world, all manner of plans had already been put in place in order to know how to quickly respond in the event of a global pandemic. But since none had appeared for such a long time, we all became complacent. We became unprepared. And when the first signs of a global pandemic were hitting, governments around the world were caught off guard and quite slow to shut down their borders and enforce quick and effective measures to slow its growth. You know, I will leave it to future historians to tell us why. And it may be that a deep and unshakable belief in globalism, global trade, global movement of people, was seen as a virtue in and of itself. And that the idea that we should immediately close down our borders and restrict the movement of people, well, that was seen as heresy that could not be violated. You know, again, I'm not playing the role of a future historian, but I do believe that complacency will be seen as a major player in an inability to be prepared. Well, that same thing can be said about our Lord's return. Christians have been taught to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus for a long time now. But at least so it seems to me, there is a general complacency. A great many reasons are given for that. We have seen people interpret the passages regarding the coming of our Lord very badly. And that has created a sense that anyone who is now speaking about the coming of our Lord is is probably on the lunatic fringe. Now, I know that's not quite how we say it, but there's a great deal of suspicion among believers in this regard. Let me use but one example. You know, I'm old enough to remember how the second coming of Jesus was taught during my childhood. You know, people regularly taught Matthew 24, 32 to 34. They said that was a prophetic timetable of the Lord's return. You know, that passage says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, from that passage, we were taught that the fig tree represents Israel, and the putting out of the leaves and so forth referred to Israel coming back to the promised land. And so, at least this is how it was taught during my youth. It was that when Israel came back to the promised land back in 1948, well, then the prophetic clock started ticking. Jesus, we were told, promised us that when Israel came back to the promised land, the generation that saw that, the events of 1948, well, that generation would not pass away before the second coming. And so some argued that a generation in biblical terms would last no more than 40 years. So we were told that Christ would be back by 1988. Well, now, when 2018 came and went, we were then 70 years and still no second coming. Now, 
I can't even begin here to point out all the interpretive errors that were committed in order to come to that conclusion. You know, I was pointing that out recently, and one person became very angry with me. You know, I simply said, well, are you saying that a generation is 80 years now, or how about 100 years? In your estimation, does the Bible say that Jesus is definitely going to come back in the next 30 years? Now, it's amazing that all the Bible teachers who taught this so emphatically didn't simply apologize and say, we misled God's people, but they did. And in response, so many of God's people have just stopped paying attention to Bible prophecy conferences. And those that go often don't know all the errors that have been made in the past, the false predictions, and the bad ways of interpreting the Bible. But given that, we've become complacent. We aren't watchful. We've all become, you know, how shall I call it? Well, agnostic about our Lord's return. You know, I guess it's going to happen, but there's no reason to study it carefully. After all, it all just leads to error and division between people. We're studying 1 Thessalonians, and the issue of the Lord's second coming had deeply confused even that very early church. Remember that it was this church planted by the Apostle Paul along with Silas and others. Remember also that the church encountered persecution almost immediately after it had begun. Remember also that the church had been sustained in its new faith because of what Paul had called the perseverance of hope. Hope in the Lord's return is what kept them unmoved and steadfast in the distressing times through which they were going. And so to this theme, the the second coming of Jesus, Paul now turns his attention. He's already dealt with the sense of distress that some of them felt around the death of some in that church. Did those who died miss out on the second coming of Jesus? And Paul has explained that. But next, he turns his attention to what has created all the disturbance in our day, to the matter of times and seasons. Ah, that does sound like what we in our day have called the prophetic timetable. So where are we in the timeline of our Lord's return? How close are we to the actual date? So let's read our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let's begin with the words times and seasons. When Paul uses those words, does he use them in the same way that modern-day prophecy conference people use those words? Does he talk as we do about when the prophetic clock starts ticking and so assessing how close we are right now to midnight? Because if we are to be aware of and expecting the second coming of our Lord, Does it not make sense to know how close we are actually to that event? So you're going to notice that in explaining the matter of times and seasons, Paul will give us two analogies, and here's the first. It's the analogy of the thief in the night. Now, many of us are quite aware of that analogy, for this is not the only time in the Bible where we actually find those words. Jesus talked that way in Matthew 24, 43. He said, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, 
he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Now, when we read those words, we might say, ah, yeah, no doubt, the image of a thief in the night must have to do with the prophetic calendar. If the master of the house had only known, he would have taken precautions. If the Thessalonian Christians would only be aware at what hour the thief was coming, they'd be ready. Surely then the image must have something to do with the matter of the timing of our Lord's return. But if we read the context of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, he's actually saying the opposite. You know, back in verse 36 of that chapter, he says that concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels. And then he even goes further, not even the Son. As fully man, Jesus did not know in his humanity the prophetic timetable of his return. And because of that, therefore, we don't know where we are on the prophetic timetable either. You see, Jesus argues that we must be ready at any moment. He's not arguing for charts and graphs that show us where we exist on the timetable. Instead, he argues for constant vigilance. And that's exactly how Paul uses the image of the thief here as well. Look again at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. That is, from the perspective of the world that does not know Christ, well, they're not anticipating the Lord's return. They're not watching. They're not preparing themselves. They're like the owner of a large building that holds great valuables, but they don't ever expect a thief to come after what's inside. And so they take no precautions. They don't put in sophisticated alarm systems. They don't post guards in appropriate places. They don't set up a security perimeter. And one morning when they come to work, they find that thieves have taken everything of value. In reality, they could not have known when the thieves were coming, but in their case, they were so foolish that they never even entertained the thought that the thieves were coming. And that's why they were unprepared. They were saying peace and security, not knowing that their peace and security was about to be smashed so suddenly. And that's how it is for the people of this world who imagine that everything is going on as it always has been. The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy. You know, we might at this point wonder why it is when Paul speaks of the Lord's second coming that he speaks of it in terms of a thief in the night. You know, thieves break in and they steal. I mean, how is the return of Jesus anything like that at all? 
Well, as is the case in most analogies, you can't make all the things apply to everything. You know, the second coming of Jesus is not like a thief in the sense, you know, Jesus is coming to break into a place that's not his, and he's going to steal that which doesn't belong to him. I mean, after all, the earth is the Lord's, and Jesus has never relinquished his rightful ownership to everything that he has created. He doesn't come to steal that which is not his. If there is a thief, it's we who are thieves, the rebellious children of Adam who try to claim that which belongs only to the Creator. Or perhaps we can say Satan is a thief. And so we can rightfully say that the second coming of Jesus is only to be compared to a thief in the night in respect to two things. You know, in terms of the world, it's unexpected. And in terms of the world, it will come suddenly. They will say, you know, we had our world in control and then suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus returned. Now, you might notice that in verse 1, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers that he doesn't need to write anything about this matter. He's already taught them these things when he was with them. Uh, This much they do understand. Then notice also he doesn't refer to this day as the second coming. Notice he refers to it as the day of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that gets borrowed from the First Testament. Here's but one example, and I take this one from Isaiah 13, 9 to 11. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. You know, in short, we could say that the First Testament describes the day of the Lord as the time when God finally calls an end to the day of evil. It's, it's a day of punishment, it's a day of divine justice, and it is a day in which all human pride will be laid low, and a day in which every man, woman, and child will be called to give an account before God. Now, in the New Testament, or the Final Testament, the day of the Lord becomes the day of the Lord Jesus. That's because we now, with fuller revelation, are given the long-awaited identity of the Messiah. We know that the day of the Lord is attended with Jesus himself appearing, and he is the one that ushers in the day. You know, it's good news if you have, as John the Baptist said, that you've repented and surrendered to him, but it's very bad news if one carries on as before and is completely ambivalent that the earth is the Lord's, and and that's the issue. Only unbelievers are surprised when Jesus not only returns, but when he returns in such a way as to end evil and deliver the kingdom to God the Father, when he judges all mankind and brings in a perfect reign of righteousness to those who are complacent, who think to themselves that, you know, they've pushed the creator out of the world, that they now own the earth. You know, then for them, The coming day is going to overwhelmingly terrify them. It will also be unexpected. I mean, just like the person whose house or business was broken into. It had never occurred to that person that the business belonged to someone else. To them, that day feels like a thief in the night. But to the image of a thief in the night, Paul now adds a second image. And it's the image of a pregnant woman. Look again at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
I don't need to tell you that it's no surprise to a pregnant woman when the day of her labor pains actually arrive. And so, the image of a pregnant woman is not the image of something that's unexpected. But the image of a woman going into labor is to be compared to something of which people will not escape. Look, I'm a man, and so, as I've been told, the less I tell you about the actual experience of what it's like to go through labor, the better it is for all concerned. But at the risk of saying too much, let me tell you what is, at least to me, a humorous story. I know of one woman who was already in the hospital, and her labor pains had begun in earnest. And after one rather distressing contraction, she told her husband, okay, that's enough. I don't want to do this anymore. Let's go home. I say it's funny and realize that by saying that, I'm taking my life into my own hands. But as we all know, whether we have experienced it or not, once labor has begun, that woman is going through. No one can walk away from that. And that's what Paul is communicating here. Once the coming of our Lord is at hand, the entire earth is going through it. There's no escape. There's no place of refuge. There's no hiding place. There's only the experience of being summoned before the most terrifying thing that can happen, which is the bar of God's justice. And that's why the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 27, speaks of the importance of the Lamb's book of life. If all we're hoping for is that we've been good enough to withstand the divine scrutiny of every event in our life, well, listen, we're going to be put to shame and be subject to horror. Our only hope is grace. Our only hope is a book of mercy, a book that flows from Calvary's cross, a book that takes the worst of sinners and cleanses them and writes their name into the book of eternal life. If your name's not there, you're going through the judgment and there is no escape like a woman in labor. Now, having said that, Paul speaks directly to believers and he says two important things. First, in verse 4, Regarding the image of a thief in the night, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And here Paul uses the image of darkness as a synonym for ignorance. You're not ignorant that the earth belongs to the Lord. You're not ignorant that the great creator has not relinquished his hold on this earth. You're not ignorant that the God who made us in his image will hold us accountable to his law and his righteousness, to his purposes and to his design. When that great day arrives, you won't be shocked. You understand the nature of God. He is determined that the earth, the one he made for his purpose, would be filled with the glory of God. And when that day comes, while the people of the earth are complacent and inattentive, smugly secure, they will be overwhelmed with incredible shock and disbelief. But it won't be that way for you. And then second, not only are you believers not in shock, you're also in delight. Look again at verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now, notice how quickly Paul changes how, how he uses the word darkness. You know, in verse 5, unlike verse 4, darkness in verse 5 is not an image for ignorance. Here it's an image for evil, wickedness. For example, listen to Colossians 1.13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And that's what conversion is. Yeah, conversion means that our sins are forgiven, sure enough. 
but it also means that we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil and rebellion to its creator, and we have now been put into the kingdom of light. See, once converted, we become the children of light as well as the children of the day. Paul gives a much more extensive teaching on that in Ephesians 5, 8 to 12, where he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So that's what it is to be a child of the day. It is to live in what is good and what's true. It's to avoid that which is done in secret and that which is shameful. To be in the day is to live openly. It's to live authentically, being all that God wants us to be, and when we sin, to repent openly as well. Ultimately, that's where end times teaching, when it's done rightly, should lead us. It is to live with an expectation that the day of the Lord Jesus will in fact come, and that we who hope in him won't be surprised, and furthermore, we won't be ashamed either. It's not to teach us to know when the day comes, but it's to be assured that it will come. It's not, as one writer said, to pay attention to the signs we have been taught, but rather to pay attention to the new birth we have experienced. It is to say with assurance that we would rather belong to the day, no matter how dark the present hour is, for this darkness can't last. Behold, the light, the day is coming. John, as excited as you always are about the return of Christ, it's not something that we really talk a lot about. We speak with appropriate awe and reverence regarding Christ's sacrifice, the delight about his resurrection, but not so much about his coming again. Why might that be? Well, I I, I think this kind of comes and goes in waves in Christian history. Um, And uh, with each wave, there are great dangers. I mean, if we think little of the coming of the Lord, the great danger is we become complacent. Uh, We're not living in expectation. And I think our morals suffer as a result of it as well. We don't live in holiness. Uh, The problem on the other end of the spectrum is that when we become too overly enthused on it, we begin to gain these speculative theories, which all tend to be wrong, and that leads us to the other side of the pendulum again. And instead, I think we should keep our heart in what the Scripture teaches us and always be anticipating His coming. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our continuing series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the clear, reliable teaching of God's Word, but we understand this great calling is not a solo effort. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called Companions for the Gospel. Companions for the Gospel consists of individuals across Canada who choose to pray and support ongoing Bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift. The result? Lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel monthly partnership, 
its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.